Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics podcast. We host real conversations with real experts from around the world. Away from the filtered bubble of social media, our aim is to educate listeners and explore any topic in the cosmetic and wellness space. We also get a unique insight into the business minds of the entrepreneurs and pioneers who have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general information about procedures and products. You should seek professional medical advice and assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Cara McDonald, a renowned dermatologist based in Melbourne, Australia. She is one of the directors of Complete Skin Specialists based in Sunbury, where she and her colleagues provide a first-class and comprehensive dermatology service to the region. Cara's special interests include skin cancer prevention and treatment, acne, rosacea, and cosmetic dermatology. She specializes in full-face rejuvenation using injectables and combines these with appropriate skin care and laser treatments. Cara is an international speaker and trainer for Allegan, in addition to being an ambassador for La Roche-Posay. Cara, thank you for joining us. Um, Pleasure, so, thanks for having me. No, thanks, not at all. We're, we're delighted to have you. Now, you and I know each other, obviously, through the Allegan Medical Institute, um, but you're a superstar dermatologist. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background, your practice, how you ended up from Tasmania to Melbourne, etc.? Yes, well, it's a long story. How long have you got? Carry on, Aaron. We've got 90 minutes. We've got plenty of time. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I grew up in Tasmania. My parents actually were both Melbournians, though, and they moved there when I was three. And so I grew up there, went to medical school in Tasmania. And um, before I did medicine, I actually planned on becoming an artist, um, right. which was my passion all through school and and certainly um you know what I put all my energy into actually um and so you know I think I was always just drawn to that I suppose um color and pattern and aesthetic side of of life more than anything but um I decided that it probably wouldn't be that easy to make a career out of and um jump ship at the last minute and did medicine. So uh, we didn't really have any dermatology training though in um, Hobart. I did in Tasmania. We had a couple of lectures. Um, and, but for some reason, I always, I was always really fascinated by the skin. I always really liked the idea of it and um, didn't, uh, didn't really think that I would uh, pursue it because I just didn't have enough experience. But I moved to Melbourne after I finished my medical degree and sort of embarked on physician training, thinking that that's what I'd do and uh, that dermatology was a bit too hard. It was very hard to get into the training program. And uh, so I put it in the too hard basket for a while. But I actually just was always drawn back to skin. And once I started sort of physician training or basic physician training, I sort of found it a bit... Um, depressing actually <laughs> uh, I just I think I um you know it's really hard dealing with sick people all the time and the funny thing about skin is even though we there's so much we can do to help people they're not usually sick and I really liked that about dermatology and so I'd had a little bit of exposure as a junior doctor and then decided to pursue that um, and in the meantime I did a master of public health trying to work out what my backup plan would be if I didn't get into dermatology, but got into dermatology, um, finished my master's of public health as well while doing my dermatology training 
And um, yeah, during my dermatology training, I kind of almost accidentally fell into doing some cosmetic stuff because I was assigned to do a, um, a sort of rotation with Professor Greg Goodman. And I had just come back from a year in Oxford where I did a year of my training and hadn't really thought twice about anything cosmetic ever before. But uh, working with Greg was just amazing and he's a, he's a fantastic teacher and an awesome mentor. And, you know, Greg used to just like bring in a patient and he'd, um, he'd say, okay, so I'm going to do the filler on this side and you're doing it on the other. And you'd be like, <laughs> what? Um, and obviously the patients trusted him and he chose the right patient. But um, to have someone put that trust into you with their patients was phenomenal actually and um, has really, I think it really triggered my passion for teaching, working with him and seeing how you can influence someone through education. Anyway, long story short, I finished my training, continued working with Greg, and um, I also met my current business partner and co-owner of our practice, Belinda Welsh, um, as a junior doctor. Uh, That's another long story. I don't know if you want to hear it. But um, we sort of were quite like-minded. I loved working with her. She grew up in the country, so did I. We both rode horses we both liked the same things and she just said to me if you ever want to work with me when you're finished feel free and she works um oh our practice now is actually sort of what we call outer metropolitan melbourne so we're just on the boundary of regional um and so we have a a real country population which is amazing it's really good and so i was working half with greg and half with her for a while and um i just really liked the the patients and I liked getting out of the CBD a bit where I, I kind of live in a city, um, but I really liked working out of out of um, inner Melbourne. It's a very different patient group and different problems, lots of real dermatology, if you want to put it that way, um, not so many of the, the worried well. And, um, yeah, so that's how I ended up working with Belinda and ended up full-time with her and buying into the practice that we now have. Right. So we're going to get on to um, your clinic called, it's called Complete Skin Specialists. But before we delve into that, you mentioned that you were an aspiring artist. Yeah. What, what medium? And do you think that that artistic inclination has helped you with your aesthetic eye? Uh, look, I'm not sure whether that helped me with my aesthetic <laughs> eye or sort of vice versa, I suppose. But I was a painter. Painting yep. is my thing. I still do it a little bit. Um, less so since having kids, uh, which have, you know, taken a bit bit of time over the last 10 years. <laughs> but, um, yeah, look, I, I, I've always been very much drawn to colour and patterns and, you know, the skin itself, like even dermatology, I think, you know, it's fascinating. Everything, everything we do, it's all visual, you know. We're not sort of necessarily having to take long histories and do all these investigations and so on just to get to a diagnosis we get to to see it um and I love being able to see the problems on the patient's skin and you know skin is like the epitome of beauty I think it's the most important thing in the whole beauty arena and so it really kind of leads into that you know cosmetic and medical dermatology you know a lot of people try to separate them but 
really it's just one big continuum. There's no dermatology problem that doesn't have an aesthetic side to it, really. Um, if you ask any patient that comes to see us for anything, I mean, part of it is is what it looks like. So um, did I answer your question? Not really. Yes, well, kind of, yeah. <laughs> Painting. <laughs> painter, uh, yes. Yeah, painter. And and I think definitely I, I love the creative side of cosmetic work. I think yeah. that's that's yeah, what satisfies me. The reason I ask is we've had we've had quite a few people on the podcast um, who've had artistic backgrounds, and it's just been interesting hearing how commonly it comes up. Like people like Dr. Astogi, um, I think even Dr. Stephen Liu is quite artistically inclined as well. So it's just interesting hearing how people start off with those um, that passion for art, and then sort of find their way into this field, and then it sort of tends to it tends to help them along the way or in some way. Yeah, I think um, I think you can you can tell that there's different approaches to aesthetic work and um, some people really just use their eye to um, decide on treatments and other people are more process and protocol driven. And um, I think, you know, there are different ways of doing things and different people have different strengths and weaknesses. And, uh, but I think for me, it's, it's more about, satisfying that creative outlet um mm-hmm. that, that I enjoy as well and just seeing the change it's it's interesting um a bit off the topic but when we were doing a house renovation um the architect sort of said to me you know you can just see all this as a finished product can't you you know you can imagine like we're going through the drawings and I'm just like yeah like can't can't everyone she's like no not many people can actually imagine something in 3d in the future um and she said that that was actually quite an unusual skill to have to be able to see something as it will exist and i thought that was really fascinating that um that you know that to me is just so natural i suppose that i can look at someone and then imagine how they're going to look once they've had a treatment but probably um not everyone does that why did you choose your specialist topics of uh, skin cancer, rosacea, and acne management? My real interest is in procedural work in dermatology, and um, I really enjoy all, all the procedures, whether they're lasers, injectables, um, or surgery. And so I think I've naturally lent towards um the subspecialties in dermatology that have a lot of procedural work involved, but also those that involve the face. Um, you know, we we see a lot of inflammatory skin conditions like eczema and psoriasis, you know, many other rashes, genital problems, hair loss, nails. Um, you know, the number of things we see is, is really extensive, but you start to, I suppose, develop expertise in certain areas. And I think that's what's led me to those specific areas in particular that they involve the face, they involve aesthetics, but they also involve procedural work, which I enjoy doing a lot. Mm. Now your clinic, as we've mentioned uh, previously, is called Complete Skin Specialists. And I was looking through your website. It seems like you've got like a thousand people that work for you and you do every procedure known to mankind. I was looking through, you do cosmetic injectables, you do like laser treatments. Obviously you do your your real medicine, I'm doing inverted commas, real medicine, dermatology as well. I was just curious, what is the split roughly between, I guess, would you want to call it therapeutic dermatology and cosmetic? Is that the right way to define it? 
Yeah, it's a it's actually a difficult split because there's really so much overlap. And yeah. um, Belinda, my practice partner, and I are both um, very proactive in treating our medical patients um, with kind of the cosmetic treatment options that we have and we see a hell of a lot of sun damage and rosacea in our practice and those patients a lot of them have no idea that they have vascular laser and other treatment options like um, you know laser assisted photodynamic therapy and so on which not only improves their their skin problem that they have you know their medical problem but it also gives them an amazing aesthetic improvement as well and um, many people come to us for a medical problem and then end up having a procedure or an aesthetic treatment and then go on to having other aesthetic treatments. So we've got um, four other dermatologists that work with us and uh, they none of them do any um, real cosmetic work. Uh, they do a little bit of laser, no injectables. Um, Belinda has a lot of laser experience and works at the Royal Children's Hospital in the laser clinic as well and um, also does some injectables and I do a bit of laser and a lot of injectables. So we probably, if you looked at the whole practice, we're probably 80% medical, 70 80% medical um, in terms of the dermatology patients, but we also have... Um, a nurse and dermal therapy-led cosmetic clinic um, that uh, does a, a lot of our laser work for us and a, a little bit of injectables as well, but not so much. Can I ask, Cara, your um, injectable patients, because you're a little bit more rural, um, you know, are they more conservative? Are they what we would call the positive ages in sort of the MD codes type sort of way of teaching, I guess? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I would say my average patient would be between 50 and 60. Mm-hmm. Um, but conservative, it's an interesting word because a lot of them are new to injectables when they see me, uh, but they're very trusting. Mm-hmm. They're very open to, um, so, you know, your, your suggestions and advice about their treatment. Um, so I don't know, you know, if you have the same sort of um, patient population but you know the younger patients are very pedantic and they're very precise about what they want and they you know they've done a lot of research often but they they think they know best usually Uh Um, but they're also very specific you know I want this and I want that and I want you to do this for me and um, whereas my patients on the whole say you know I'm here because I trust you, you know, they've been recommended or they've come through our clinic or, um, you know, they've had some experience that has led them to us usually. They're not, they're not finding us on, you know, Google or in the, in the high street shopping centres and so on. They walk in but, and they just hand over that trust and that's yeah. something I really notice the difference between working in the inner city as well and um, I still work in the city a little bit. And I really still see the difference where the patients here, the the trust is in walking in the door and then they hand it over to you. Um, and interestingly, they're, they're usually people that have decided, yep, I'm going to invest in myself and um, what what you suggest will, will go. And obviously that's a 
huge honour that they trust you like that and that they will go with your advice. But it's a it's a great patient population. Um, you know, most of them are sort of open to a sort of full face approach and um, and then sort of stay with me for years, which is always hard to then get new people in. I think the dermatologist title helps a bit, doesn't it? <laughs> I think it does for those people who are looking um, for the that right person. They're not just sort of, I, they're not out there because they want their lips done or that they even want their cheeks done. They don't, they don't come in with so many preconceived ideas of what yeah. they want done. They come in thinking, okay, I've found someone who can help me and I'm going to let them tell me sort of what to do. And that's where I, um, I see that difference, yeah. I noticed on your website that you've got a section on men's skincare. Now, is that because I know men's skin is obviously a little bit thicker. I know that with testosterone we sort of age differently and so on. But is it what is what is different about the way you approach treating a man's skin? Is it because we're just so not good at following instructions and you need to give us like a different approach or is it a different technical sort of uh, road you need to travel down when it comes to treating men's skin? I'm going to blame Belinda for this one. (laughs) Actually, (laughs) (laughs) but um, Belinda's always actually had this thing where she she says men need our help, um, (laughs) but they (laughs) don't often ask for it as as much as as women will. Uh So I think one of Belinda's things has been to make sure that men feel like they're welcome in our clinic and that we do see men and that we can do do a lot to help them because you know we as women can cover up our redness with a bit of foundation or Mm -hmm. um, hide a lot of things but men often have these same problems and you know they're really self-conscious about them but don't feel like it's the right thing to do um, especially in our kind of patient population to be seeking um, you know help for their for their cosmetic or aesthetic or even skin concerns. So, you know, the the obvious answer is that, you know, men's skin isn't really that much different. They certainly need telling what to do a lot more though. Would Steve agree with that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm going to pivot us to our topic of the evening because we could just talk all night about um, everything, to be completely honest. So I'm going to start off with an easy one. What is skin cancer, Cara? Well, skin cancer <laughs> is um, cancer of the skin, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, as we all know, cancer is a cell that has lost its control mechanism. So it's usually dividing um, abnormally dividing too quickly, dividing out of control and in a way that it can destroy other tissues. So, you know, there are actually quite a few types of skin cancer, but um, a skin cancer is any of those malignancies that come from one of the the main skin cell types. Uh, We had a guest on, I can't remember who it was, and uh, I think actually it was Davin Lim, and he said that um, he did a period of time in Ireland and I was amazed because he said that he saw some of the most crazy, um, you know, cancers that he's ever seen. And yet you would think in Ireland, you know, it's a pretty rainy, grey, non uh, sort of UV high country. But It's interesting because I had a similar experience in Oxford. I did a year of my training in Oxford in the UK and um, it was quite 
unbelievable because we'd just get, you know, nasty melanoma after nasty skin cancer. And I think um, there's less, a little bit less awareness in the general population, so they leave things longer. Definitely. Um, maybe more denial, who knows. But the other thing is, uh, and I'm not sure if Ireland is exact, exactly the same, but the NHS basically doesn't allow GPs to treat um, many skin cancers because they have this, um, you know, it's cancer, it deserves a specialist opinion. Um, and so anything that is a cancer has to sort of go through dermatology. So you you see a lot of things that maybe as specialists in Australia get filtered out before they mm. even come to us, I think. Fair mm. enough. Um, so in terms of the different types of skin cancers that there are, I know of three, but maybe there's more. So I know there's the BCC and the SCC, and then you've got the really nasty one, which is the melanoma, which everyone's really scared of. Um, is there any others? And can you maybe just ex- sort of break those down like one at a time, like what they are and sort of what, what, what people should look for and how you treat them, et cetera? So, yeah. Yeah, look, they're the main three that we see. Um, there are a few other rare tumours in the skin um, that uh, I suppose would really only be diagnosed on pathology. Uh, they would look pretty much similar to the others in most cases. So, you know, they're probably not worth dwelling on too much. Um, BCCs or basal cell carcinomas are certainly the most common. I think they account for something like 70% of non-melanoma skin cancers. And um, they are, you know, there's two main cell types within the um, the skin and that's the keratinocyte and the melanocyte you know there are two main skin cells but the basal cells are just literally the basal stem cell layer of the keratinocyte and then once they divide um they become squamous cells which so really the non-melanoma skin cancers as we call them uh they can be a a basal cell or a squamous cell depending on at what point of differentiation they become a cancerous cell um, but they they sort of are a similar cell type. The basal cell carcinomas tend to be less aggressive. They, even though they are cancerous, they only do local damage, so they don't tend to spread um, hematogenously or um, lymphatically through through um, to cause metastatic disease. Whereas squamous cell carcinomas can, in some situations, uh, metastasize. Although it's not that common either. Both of them tend to be a local skin cancer. So BCCs tend to be just a pink or pearly sort of lesion. They often bleed. They're often like a small sore that just never heals. People often come in and say, oh, no, I scratched myself, you know, but it just never healed. And mm. what happens is they think they scratched themselves because they saw some blood in that spot three months ago. Um, they think, oh, I've scratched myself. And then Surprise, surprise, it never went away because it was a skin cancer in the first place, usually. Um, squamous cell carcinomas tend to be a little bit different. They tend to be a tender sort of hyperkeratotic lesion. And so one of the things that differentiates them is that they tend to be more painful. Um, they tend to grow faster. They tend to be more scaly, um, more erythematous. But, you know, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between the two. Uh, demoscopy often helps Um, and then you've got your melanoma of course which comes from your melanocyte which is your pigment producing cell uh, which um, exists throughout the skin 
And um, they are a much smaller cell type and have uh, much more potential to spread and um, metastasize elsewhere in the body, which is why even though they are the least common, they're the most kind of concerned about, I suppose. How do the um, melanomas present, Kyra? Because obviously that's something that, you know, people can obviously just check their moles, you know, in the mirror or, or go and get a skin cancer check. But what do they look like and, and what should be people be looking out for? So melanomas, you know, can present in all sorts of ways. But, you know, the thing I'm always saying to my patients is that by definition, cancer is uh, change. It's cells growing out of control, okay? So without any exception, all cancers have to be growing to some degree, growing and changing. And the faster they're growing, the faster you want to get to them. So if you notice a spot changing, growing, and that can be change in shape, colour, size, texture, bleeding, itching, any of those signs are are a suggestion that it's growing and changing. And obviously not every growing lesion is a skin cancer or a melanoma, but if it is growing and changing, it deserves a check. So I think that's that's the most basic thing. You know, melanomas are usually brown or black or brownie black, but they can be pink. They can be basically skin coloured. They can be red. Um, when we look at them under the dermatoscope, we usually see multiple colours. So when we look at a mole, we might say, that it's it's you know got one or two colors in it a light brown or a dark brown whereas melanomas tend to have patches of blue black brown pink red white um, gray um, within them so that helps us differentiate them but usually they're they're a bit larger than a typical freckle they're darker they're changing they're uneven and um an ugly duckling, we often call them, you know, just something that you look at on your skin and you think, God, that does not look like my other spots. You're never going to get a melanoma that just looks identical to all your other moles, or rarely. I must have chopped out hundreds of BCCs and SCCs when I did plastics, but if you had have said to me, what is that, without it being diagnosed by someone else, I would have had no idea. So what happens, you know, when someone presents to you and, and you know, they say, oh, hey, doc, this thing's changed. Like, what, how simple is it to use a dermatoscope and, and who should people be seeing for that sort of test? Um, look, I think you need training to use a dermatoscope and, um, you know, how often does it change our diagnosis? Not very often as a dermatologist. I mean, you've got to remember, and I think this is where people don't fully understand that we we spend, you know, four years at least in our specialist training and it's it's diagnostics, diagnostics, diagnostics. Like it's just all this pattern recognition and um, dermatology is really uh, a specialty of being able to see something and diagnose it. And um, I would say most of the time I, you know, I, I can diagnose um the lesion before we look at it with the dermatoscope and the dermatoscope will confirm it. Um, but it's certainly, even now I see, you know, the, the more junior doctors, um, you know, their diagnostics as in dermatology trainees and so on, their, their diagnosis is not as good as those, those of us that have just been doing it for years and do lots of it. Um, so I think it's difficult to, to tell you how how we do it because it's something that you just become become an expert at and that's what we do. Mm. 
there was a period of time where it seemed like these skin cancer clinics were opening up all over the place. And I'm not sure, to be, to be perfectly honest with you, who was working there, whether they were dermatologists or not, but they seemed to be quite popular and people were getting checks all the time and people were always getting things cut out. I guess my question is, what were your thoughts on those types of uh, clinics and who was doing these procedures and did we have, do we have a risk of people that don't have the proper training cutting out things that aren't necessary or scaring people unnecessarily? Yeah, look, it's a really difficult topic because these skin cancer clinics are, are really important in Australia, actually, from my point of view. There are not enough dermatologists to service the whole population in terms of skin checks. And um, some people can't afford to see a specialist as well. Usually it is more expensive to see a specialist than go to a skin cancer clinic. However, um, as you said, the problem is we don't know who those people are. That That's the bottom line, right? Um, if you're a dermatologist, there's a very rigorous training program you've gone through and exams that you've gone through. And so you can get a, a fairly... Um, confident base level in any dermatologist whereas in a skin cancer clinic you might have people who have done a lot of extra training have years of experience um, have other um, you know diplomas or or skin courses under their belt and then you get people who um, just have an interest or um, unfortunately see it as a quick way to do a lot of um, procedural work and possibly make money. So it's it's just, again, it's probably similar to the injectables field. There's no, there's no basic level of training that you know everybody has had. Um, some, some people, they're a nurse injector, but they have had extensive training and, and been doing it for many years and they're brilliant. And you can't say that they're less qualified than someone who's a plastic surgeon who picks up a syringe, you know, once a month and, um, you know, people assume they're good because they're a plastic surgeon. They're not going to be. And it's the same in these skin cancer clinics. There are, I'm sure, many, many brilliant, um, you know, diagnosticians and, and skin cancer doctors, but we do know from statistics that they cut out a lot, lot more benign lesions than dermatologists do and whether or not that's because their diagnostics are not as good or whether it's because that's their clinic model, it's hard to know. Mm. Something's popped into my mind, but I don't know if this is the right analogy. I remember when I used to go down to the radiologist as a surgical reg and they would flick through the, you know, the scans or the CTs or whatever and for them, it's just pattern recognition. Their brain is just wired after years of experience just to see stuff that the casual observer wouldn't have a clue. Do you think, is that is it the same sort of thing? Oh, 100%, 100%. You know, I, I saw a patient today and I'm like, that's that's spots changed. I haven't seen them for a year. Hmm. And I just like, I don't know whether it's that I just know that the spot wasn't quite right. And if it wasn't quite right last year, I would have done something about it or whether... I can actually remember that spot. I don't know. It's just like this pattern recognition and, mm. um, you know, over and over again, you know, you'll just see a spot and they're like, I didn't, you know, middle of the forehead and the patient didn't know it was there, but you mm. just you just see it um, because your eye is so trained into slightly different blood vessels, slightly different texture. I mean, whenever I do a skin check, I'm literally, it's like Braille, right? Like I'm touching the patient <laughs> all over because it's not just seeing, but it's it's the see and the feel and the, you know, um, different lumps and bumps. You can feel a BCC feels different to a solar keratosis and so on. Mm. 
Now, I know this question might be very difficult to answer in the confines of a, of a short conversation on a podcast, but how are you generally treating these these lesions? So if you've got like a, a BCC or an SCC, maybe we'll get maybe we'll treat melanoma differently. But for those two, uh, I guess, categories of skin cancer, I've seen people getting them like burnt off or frozen off, or sometimes you see like them being surgically excised and then getting like skin grafts and so on. How, what's the general sort of breakdown of how you treat these cancers once you've identified them? Yeah, look, it is quite difficult to generalise because it depends a lot on the the site on the body, the type of lesion it is, the the other comorbidities and, and, you know, problems for that patient and also what treatment options are available to us. But, um, you know, on the whole there's superficial skin cancers, which are a superficial BCC and also Bowen's disease, which is squamous cell carcinoma in situ. And those are the lesions that we will tend to treat more with the non-surgical um, or, you know, um, non-excision options. So we have photodynamic therapy, um, which is where we, we apply a cream which gets taken in by sun-damaged or cancerous cells and then activated by a light source. We have... Um, 5-fluorouracil, which is basically a chemotherapy drug in a cream. So, you know, you rub it on and it works the same way as if you'd injected it in that those abnormal cells will take it up and die, whereas the normal cells will be kind of left alone, which is great. Um, there's another topical treatment called imiquimod, which works on an immune-stimulating response. So, again, it gets taken up by cancerous cells or abnormal cells, and then it stimulates your immune system to say, this is an abnormal cell, I'm going to knock it off. Um, and then cryotherapy uh, is is dry ice, so liquid nitrogen. It's, it's literally a burn. It's a cold burn. So... Um, that's used a lot by some people who may not have other um, more sophisticated treatment options, but it's also used some, for some lesions. It's just the best treatment. It can really just if you if you're very experienced and you can get the freezing to exactly the right layer, you can just form a blister underneath it and peel it off. Mm. Um, and then sometimes you know we might have an elderly person. I had someone today and, you know, he's got a small superficial BCC on his arm. We could cut it out. We could do all the cream. We could do all those things. But we just elected to freeze it off because if it came back, it wouldn't matter, you know. It could then be be treated by another method. So all the non-surgical methods sort of have a, have a cure rate probably around 80 to 90% versus surgical excision mm. is, you know, between 95 and 100 depending on the lesion. Mm. So if, you, if it's head and neck, it's a high risk um, like a, a squamous cell carcinoma or it's a younger person, you want to get rid of it and make sure it's not going to come back. Surgical excision is always the best option. Mm-hmm. Can I ask, Kai, we sort of jumped in with, well, I jumped in with what is skin cancer, but is it always from sunlight? Is it always UV damage or can it be genetic? Are, are people prone to them? Can you sort of give us a background to the sort of the pathology? Yeah, look, I mean, any cell at any point in our body can become cancerous. And so um, it's it's not always sun-related, but uh, UV is the um, most important factor in the development of skin cancer from a, an exogenous point of view. Um, 
genetics, there are some, uh, there's a, a thing called Gorlin syndrome, which is a uh, mutation which causes just multiple basal cell carcinomas all through your life and uh, sun is not involved at all. There are some genes that predispose you to melanoma and in those patients we tend to see multiple melanomas in multiple family members. Um, so, you know, we often get the question, where oh my brother's had a melanoma too does that mean you know that I've got the gene mm -hmm. for it and um, in most cases no it's that you and your brother both grew up on the beach didn't <laughs> wear enough sunscreen and you both had fair parents and you you know you've got that tendency um, whereas if you've got a a gene it tends to be as I said multiple melanomas so if you've had three melanomas and your brother's had three melanomas and your mother passed away from melanoma then you start to think okay maybe there's a, a real genetic predisposition there yeah but look sun yeah uv light is the the biggest cause of dna damage in our skin cells and it's a cumulative effect so you know these mutations kind of sit there dormant and then you add a little bit more and you add a little bit more and you add a little bit more and at some point um it it's like the you know the the uh, mouse that sunk the boat or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, yeah. we can go with that one too. <laughs> <laughs> These days we seem to be being told that we're not getting enough vitamin D and, um, you know, go get some sun exposure. And, and I'd sort of, I don't know how to reconcile that in terms of how do you know how much is enough? Like how do you know what is a safe amount of UV exposure to, to get that we need to produce vitamin D without running the risk of, unnecessarily causing ourselves to get cancer how do you how do you know what's enough um we don't really <laughs> that, that question unfortunately it's a it's another difficult one and you know much like all the politicians of late you know you're sort of you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't and yeah. um the way i put it is we know we know that the the sun ages us prematurely so for starters just avoid it on your face if you don't want to look old faster don't don't get your vitamin d through your face okay number two is that we know that the the sun causes skin cancer and that's a cumulative exposure on on the sites that get it frequently over many years and related to childhood burns as well so if you are at risk of melanoma and those are the people who have very fair skin a family history have had a skin cancer before, multiple sun uh, burns in their childhood or an outdoor occupation, then, again, probably for you getting your vitamin D through your skin is just not sensible. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you know, but um, if you're very fair-skinned, you make vitamin D super fast. You make it yeah. really quickly and you don't actually need much much sun at all. You know, you think of the, the people who live in in scandinavia up north and so on they're very fair skinned and they don't need a lot of sunlight to get enough vitamin d um whereas if you if you've got olive skin or asian skin or darker skin it's much much harder to get enough vitamin d and those people are at much lower risk of skin cancer so they probably actually need to try to get a little bit more sun um in the areas that are safer to get vitamin d if they want to get it via the sun or if you want to simplify it, just take it in a capsule. Yeah. It's almost like human beings are too smart for their own good. We're living 
we're living in places where we shouldn't be living. You've got people fair-skinned like us living in countries like Australia and people from originally from Africa living in the UK and they're suffering from not getting enough vitamin D. So we seem to be causing our own demise, being too smart. Yeah, well, or maybe not smart enough, actually. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'll apologise on the behalf of Britain. I'm sorry for we all moved here. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, you, it's all your fault, you guys. You've been colonised everywhere and now everyone's yeah. all screwed up. <laughs> but vitamin D is really important. And so, you know, if you're not getting it through your skin, get it through through a tablet. Is it, um, well, it's not a myth that Australia obviously has one of the highest skin cancer rates, but is it a myth that we still have a hole in the ozone making us specifically um, at risk? Yes, that's a bit of a myth. Um, th- there has there has been a bit of research in this area, and uh, the the hole in the ozone, I think, is not um, a significant contributor to to our skin cancer. I think it's just our outdoor lifestyles, as David said, our poor placement on the planet Earth. Uh, that doesn't suit us. And, you know, if you look at Aboriginal Australians who actually were designed to be here, um, they have a very, very, very low rate of skin cancer. And so, you know, it's really about inappropriate behaviour for your skin type. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Let's talk about the big no-no then, sunbathing, because you see it all the time. You go to the beach, everyone's coated in oil and trying to go as dark as they can as quick as they can i mean obviously that is bad but is you know well one of our listeners asked is there a safe way to kind of get a tan without risking myself i'm guessing you're gonna say no but i thought i'd ask anyway uh no yeah no. it comes again it comes down to the same you know the same thing as the vitamin d you know if you are at risk um, if you're if you're fair, you have a family history, you burn easily, you um, have had excessive exposure, had a skin cancer, then you know any additional sun you get is is going to be not good for you. If you are someone who tans very easily and um, you're naturally olive skinned and you don't burn much and you get a little bit of a tan, then that's that is your body's natural way of protecting you. Um, and so it's not you know, it's probably not the end of the world for those people, but purposefully, you know, baking yourself to get colour mm. uh, certainly does more damage than than it's worth, in my opinion. Yeah. Also, um, people that binge tan, so people that will spend 95% of their year in their car or in their office or indoors and then they'll go up to Queensland for a week and bathe the absolute hell out of themselves and <laughs> turn into a lobster and then... I, I've seemed to remember reading articles or talking to dermatologists saying those tend to be the people that tend to get a lot of issues because this it's that binge tanning mm. when they haven't built up that natural production of melanin to protect their skin. They just go and hammer themselves in a really short space of time. Well, Is there any the, truth to the that? Classic, yeah. That's the classic English way of doing it. You just mm. have a week off and you go to Spain and come back like a lobster. And, um, you know, those people certainly, yeah, they're high risk. It's um, painful sunburns are the most dangerous type of sun you can get. So if you are, you know, going out and haven't built up any tan, you go and get a painful sunburn, then every one of them um, adds up to to a problem down the track. I mean, this might be a bit anecdotal, but I've spoken to a lot of people who've moved here and, you know, 
if they're in Europe, they tend to get a tan in inverted commas, but here they're burning. And that's why I was asking the question about the ozone layer. I wondered if there was something specifically different about the UV concentration or, or something here. It seems to make people burn rather than tan. Yeah, look, I, I don't know, how, to be honest, how much the ozone contributes to that um, and how much of its other, I think there's a lot of other factors like pollutants in the environment, uh-huh. how close we are to the equator um, and, uh, you know, other environmental things other than ozone. But, yes, you know, you're right. Uh, I think people do seem to burn more easily here, but I, I couldn't tell you the exact factors that are involved and whether it's that you know we do have that real outside lifestyle where we we spend a lot of time outside and I think people um, underestimate the amount of sun they've had as well. Mm. When you're looking at someone's skin colour um, say say someone who you're saying whose olive and tans really easily versus someone who's quite pale and doesn't is it just their melanocytes that are the difference or are there actually different structures to the skin that actually cause it to respond differently? Or is it just that cell that does that causes that difference? Yeah, so melanocytes are like a little dendritic cell that sits at the bottom of the skin cell layer and its job is to produce pigment called melanin and um, that melanin then gets taken up by the overlying uh, skin cells and almost like shades the basal layer so it acts like a bit of a sort of shade cloth. And um, the the person's skin colour, so melanin can be um, eumelanin, which is the most common type, and it can be a more brown or black variant though. So someone who's very black-skinned will have a black variant. Um, and then there's pheomelanin as well, which is like redheads who literally cannot tan, so people who have what we call type fit. Fitzpatrick type one skin and they're red haired, freckled, and they just, they will not get any tan. They have this other type of melanin, which is kind of a red type, which doesn't, doesn't give you tan. But basically when you go out in the sun, um, the melanocytes produce melanin from UV exposure and that gets taken up over the next couple of days to the overlying layer of cells. But also if you go out in the sun, the um, melanin in those that's already in those cells um, will oxidise. And so, you know, when you go out in the sun and suddenly you come in and you literally feel like you got a tan straight away, well, that's actually because the melanin oxidises and actually, actually goes darker immediately, sort of within half an hour. But your base skin colour is basically um, determined by how many melanocytes you have. So someone who's um, very dark-skinned will have a lot, lot more melanocytes. And so they've got a lot more pigment just being produced the whole time. And then if they go in the sun, they've got a lot more um, pigment produced all of a sudden as well. I remember this is going back quite a while. There was a controversy years ago. I think it was just in the UK. Maybe maybe you read about it here where people were loading up on Sunny D. It was a drink and they were turning orange. <laughs> How did, is that anything to do with the melanocytes or or the carotene in the drink or like uh, how is that changing the color of the skin? Happened to me once when I had too many carrots. I just <laughs> I went we orange. My hands went that, yeah yeah with people that <laughs> eat a lot of carrots. We do actually see it. Um, I have no idea about the drink, Jake. You have to <laughs> you'll have to ask a UK dermatologist about that one. All right, all right. We'll source someone. Um, <laughs> another controversial one, which is probably uh, more relevant: people using melanotan. Um, I've seen it 
you know, around. And I was a bit shocked, to be honest, because they're ordering online and it's just a bit bizarre. But people are doing this stuff. So it's worth sort of recognizing. And, and someone did actually submit a question to say, am, am I increasing my risk of skin cancer? Um, yeah, so this, so melanotan is uh, a hormone, basically, melanocyte-stimulating hormone, uh, which is uh, produced in a feedback mechanism in the body. And I was actually, when I was a, a junior doctor registrar, we were doing a melanotan trial at St Vincent's Hospital in oh. Melbourne, and we were using it for um, these conditions we call photodermatoses. So they're um, conditions where people are actually allergic to the sun and they get terrible rashes from UV exposure. And the idea was to see whether or not um, the melanotan would protect them uh, from from these problems. But uh, the trial got pulled because it had so many problematic side effects and that there, there were reports um, of an increased risk of skin cancer because it's basically stimulating your melanocytes the whole time. Yeah. Um, so th the evidence is is not great out there still, and it's it's not it's not legal in Australia to import it or inject it. So it's a prescription drug. It's it's TGA um, not approved, and um, if you if you look on the TGA website, it's illegal to use it. So basically it's just a bit of an unknown. There are frequent side effects. People get like flushing and nausea and um, men can get spontaneous erections from it. So there's all sorts of weird and wonderful <laughs> things it causes, um, you know, so it's at your own risk really, a bit like, you know, doing anabolic steroids in the gym, I suppose. You don't know it's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe thinking about the erections. <laughs> I'm disturbed that you're thinking about my erections. <laughs> Always. <laughs> what else do I think of? Um, so, all right, so let's pivot back to skin cancer. So how are we going to protect ourselves? So sun cream or sunscreen is probably the most common thing. Can you just delve into the different types, first of all, because there's a couple and many people have submitted questions about, you know, what's better? Is it chemical? Is it mineral? Is it barrier? Is it just wearing a hat, like clothes, et cetera? What, what's your take on the spectrum of how we can protect ourselves? Okay, this is a big question. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> so, you know, as a dermatologist, we just want people to protect themselves all the time. And um, they do suggest that you should always wear sunscreen if the UV index um, is over three. And the UV index is really just a, um, a score that was developed by the World Health Organization, I think, to, to give the population an idea of what level of UV is out there. Um, to me, that's just too complicated. You know, I, I think you should protect your face at least every single day. And um, if you're going to be outdoors for more than, you know, 15 minutes uh, during the middle of the day, then you should protect your other areas, of course. So sunscreens are really quite complicated. And so I'll try to uh, summarize them a little bit. But in Australia, we really have two kind of main labeling. Um, uh, sort of ways to determine how good a sunscreen is. So the first one is SPF, which is our sun protection factor. 
And that is a measure of the sunscreen's protection against UVB light only. So UVB, you know, a couple of decades ago was thought to be the only dangerous UV wavelength, and that's because it's the one that actually does cause sunburn. Mm -hmm. And so it really um, penetrates the skin and hits that epidermal basal layer um, and causes the DNA damage in that layer. And so UVB was thought to be the only really damaging wavelength and our our sunscreens and SPF was designed to tell us how much it protected us against UVB. And SPF is a measure of time. So they literally get human subjects, they work out how long it takes for their skin to burn in a lab uh, with a certain amount of light. And if, if your skin takes four minutes to burn, then they start putting the sunscreen on at a very controlled um volume and if that sunscreen means that you don't burn for um 40 minutes then that's spf 10 so Mm -hmm. it protects you by 10 times okay and um that was used for a long time but uh we then started to realize that uva also causes um or contributes to skin cancer and uva penetrates deeper it's more responsible for a lot of our aging side effects so it damages the collagen but it also decreases our immune function in the skin which contributes to skin cancer because our checking mechanisms are are damaged and there is also some direct dna hit as well so more recently uva Uh, was appreciated but the measurements for uva are a little bit difficult and so in australia if the sunscreen says broad spectrum it means that it also covers against uva proportionally to the uvb coverage so if it's spf 10 but broad spectrum it's only going to have a small amount of of uva coverage compared to its spf 50 and broad spectrum Mm -hmm. so my advice when you're looking for a sunscreen is Make sure it's SPF 50 plus, which means it's at least 60, and make sure that it's broad spectrum. And then you're covering against UVA and UVB. And then we get to the chemical versus physical sunscreens, which are also very confusing because people uh, give a lot of different advice around this. And what makes it more confusing is that chemical sunscreens are also known as organic sunscreens. And for those that are of us that have done chemistry, we know that organic matter is carbon and hydrogen molecules. And um, for the rest of the population, organic means that it's chemical-free and, um, you know, all natural and um, grown without any chemicals. So that really confuses people that organic sunscreens are actually chemical sunscreens. And that is opposed to mineral sunscreens, which are called physical sunscreens. So these are titanium dioxide and zinc oxide predominantly. So people have concerns about both, okay? So physical sunscreens are um, classically those minerals, as I said, and they are sometimes good for people who have sensitive skin because um, some chemicals will irritate sensitive sensitive skin. But um, the problem is that in order to use them in a in a cosmetically acceptable way, we need to grind them up into nanoparticles. So most physical sunscreens have nanoparticles, which concerns some people because nanoparticles if kind of injected into mice and so on, are known to cause toxicity, kidney damage and various things. But in sunscreens, there's no um, good evidence that the nanoparticles pass through our 
basement membrane. They don't pass through our skin. And again, the TGA have done a review of this and concluded that really nanoparticles in sunscreen do not uh, enter the bloodstream according to the evidence we have. Chemical sunscreens, on the other hand, people worry because there's been reports of those chemicals when injected into animals, again, causing um, endocrine disruption and possibly increased risk of some endocrine uh, cancers. Mm. So, again, we don't see the chemicals from the sunscreens enter the bloodstream in any significant way but that's where the concerns about chemical sunscreens come from, as well as the fact that some chemical sunscreens cause irritation and allergy or allergy in some people. So that brings us back to what the hell do we do about our sunscreen? Um, What most people don't realise is that if you put chemical and physical sunscreens together, you get a much higher SPF than either one of them alone. So you get a Mm. synergistic activity the way they kind of work. And so most of our really good sunscreens have both. And um, my suggestion is you you choose a sunscreen that's preferably uh, free of other irritants like fragrances and, um, you know, one that's made for sensitive skin preferably. And uh, you find one that you like in consistency and you find one that's SPF 50 plus and you only need to worry about whether it's physical or chemical if you're having real problems or allergy or irritation Um, because at the end of the day that doesn't matter nearly as much as the sun protection it's giving you. That was a good answer there, Cara. You you, you rehearsed that before. Very good. I was taking notes after this other (laughs) podcast. Hair removal. And people getting pigment removal through lasers is very, very popular, especially in my clinics. People are coming in and getting their legs done, their chest, their back, anywhere where there's hair, we're lasering it, right? And inadvertently, the wavelengths that those lasers travel at, say a 755, for example, will inadvertently pick up pigment and remove it from time to time. Removing those um, pigmented cells, is there an issue with that? Or even if you hit a mole, for example, or something like a flat mole, is there a risk of that causing problems with diagnosing skin cancers at a later point? Because I've heard this being spoken about with patients before and I've never had a straight direct answer from a dermatologist before. Um, look, there doesn't seem to be any problem with it. Uh, so the the pigment that the laser does pick up and, and you will have seen, I, I expect, you know, that often you get a, a mould that can depigment a little bit or mm-hmm. the freckle kind of peels off. But the melanocytes themselves aren't damaged by the laser. It's only the pigment that they're producing. Um, and so it, that that's, you know, on standard settings. You can, of course, damage melanocytes if you, if you cause a burn, but that's more like an inflammatory um, problem where you're actually burning the skin rather than it being a target. The, melan- the melanocytes are too small for the to be damaged by the laser. And so um, we haven't seen any issues with um, moles or freckles that have accidentally been removed by pigment laser becoming being more prone to becoming cancerous nor being more difficult to diagnose. They usually just repigment uh, with time. Mm. I thought of a couple more questions about sun cream because these are really kind of common things. Can mm. you tell us about the dose and frequency of how often you should be applying it? Yeah, so if you um, if you think about the SPF, uh, you know, and you've got 
uh, say your skin normally burns in 10 minutes and you've got an SPF 50 plus, which actually means it's SPF 60, you know, it's going to be 600 minutes um, before your skin would burn. If you applied the amount uh, as per laboratory conditions and, um, you know, all other factors, it's Which no one ever does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But what it does show you is that you do get longevity out of a, a 50 or 60 SPF sunscreen, right? You do actually have some long-lasting sun protection. The problems are that um, sun exposure itself can degrade some of the, the chemicals in the sunscreens. Um, they can rub off, they can sweat off, they can brush off. Um, so, you know, you do you don't normally have that, that full 10 hours that the sunscreen in theory can give you and you probably didn't put enough on in the first place. Mm. Um, so for the face and neck, you need about half a teaspoon to be the right amount um, mm. each day and each limb is about one teaspoon and front and back of trunk is about one teaspoon. So it's a fair bit. But um, in answer to your question, you know, if you are getting up in the morning, doing your teeth and then coming to work for the day like I did, um, I think I looked outside once, then, you know, that once-a-day sunscreen will actually protect you all day because I'm not sweating it off, washing it off, and it's not really degrading much in the sun. But if you are going to be outdoors and, you know, losing any of your sunscreen, then you ideally should reapply every two hours just to make sure you've still got enough on if you can. Mm. What about wearing makeup and sunscreen should you be looking for a sunscreen that's got like tinted color in it or do you put your makeup on over the top or how, what's the process of application and how should you do it notice this is david's question he's very concerned well about i should because i had skin needling yesterday and i looked like i fell off a motorbike so um <laughs> <laughs> um yeah look this is this is the most common question I get, oh, how do I put my sunscreen on on top of my makeup? Um, and that's why I say if you're going to be wearing a full face of makeup, David, so, you yeah. know, when you do wear a full face of makeup, <laughs> make sure you put your sunscreen underneath it, okay, and put that on and let it soak in before you put your makeup on. Makeup and other what we call cosmetic sunscreens are not TGA approved and they're not, they don't go through the same rigorous testing so even if you've got a foundation that says spf you know or spf 10 or 50 or 30 or whatever it's not necessarily actually tested because it's not considered a primary sunscreen so you basically can't trust makeup as your sunscreen and it's very rare that we put enough on because it's not like you're sort of rubbing your sunscreen your, your foundation in until it kind of all disappears you sort of put a, a thin amount on so um the main thing is that, you know, really it's only days when, you know, maybe going to the races or something when you've got a full face of makeup and you're going to be outdoors all day uh, that it becomes a real issue, in which case, you know, there are a few tricks. There are some powder sunscreens you can pat back over the top of your makeup. You can reapply um, some sunscreen with a makeup brush and then touch up your makeup or you can just wear a hat and stay out of the sun. I was going to say, surely you wear a big fancy hat and then it's not an issue. Yeah. <laughs> surely you end up flat on your back somewhere. Gosh, well, I think we've given you an absolute grilling of questions. I, I think um, I feel very confident now with my sunscreen application and um, self-checking. So I think I'm good to go. <laughs> Jake, is there anything else you wanted to add? 
Well, I had my first skin check this year and this is, you know, coming from Britain where it's just not on our radar, but it's really important obviously having moved here and, and even if I hadn't. So how often should people be having skin checks? Um, is it necessary to obviously take photos of the whole body or are you just looking for sort of those red flag um, spots and moles, Cara? Uh, yeah, it depends really on the person and this is where it does get really quite complicated my advice is to try and get every person really in their 20s probably to have a skin check um preferably you know with someone experienced or a dermatologist because that's where you can get all that information you need and your risk will be different to my risk which will be different to david's risk and you know i might say to you look you've got no abnormal moles you've got no family history you grew up in you know England where the sun doesn't shine, you know, your risk is very low. So, you know, come back in five years unless you notice X, Y, or Z in the meantime. But the next person who comes along might need to come back every six months and have their moles, you know, carefully checked because they've got dysplastic moles, which are abnormal moles. They've got a family history of melanoma. They've had sunburns. They've worked outdoors all their life. Um, and, and those two people are just so different. And it's very hard to give everyone a general rule, which is why I think so many people are confused about it. So many people say to me, oh, you know, when am I meant to get a skin check? How do I know when I should get a skin check? Where should I go? You know, we all grew up with this kind of slip, slop, slap message in the, in the 80s. Um, and we all kind of remember that, but then it's like, well, what do we do now? You know, um, where do we go? So it's about probably that individualised education is ideal, but also comes back to if there's any anything you're worried about, if there's anything that stands out to you, if there's anything you think is changing, get it checked then. Don't go, oh, my dermatologist told me I only need to check every two years, so I'm going to wait another 19 months when my next skin check is due to get that spot checked. Like that's when you should go is when you notice something because we've all got a really good intuition about our skin um, and uh, I think people people putting things off can be a problem and also sometimes they see their GP and the GP says, oh, I think it's fine and then that's what they stick with. They're like, my GP said it's fine, I don't need to get it checked and even though it <clears> continues <throat> to change or continues to bother them, they kind of have this you know, I was told it was okay. I was told it was okay because that's what they want to believe. Um, so I always say, you know, if you if you have second thoughts, if you have doubts about it, just get it checked and get a second opinion. Yeah. Now, Cara, I didn't grow up with slip, slop, slap, but I've just Googled it and it's slip, slop, slap, seek, slide. So can you explain what those mean for people listening to remind them of, of how to protect themselves from the sun? You just made those up, Jake. I don't remember no, those two true. additional things. It's true. <laughs> I remember uh, those. Okay. Uh, you know, it was it was um it was a TV campaign yeah. in my childhood, um, and you know it was slip on a shirt, slough on your sunscreen, slap on a hat. Yeah. And then I think seek was the shade. Seek Correct. shade. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, and and slide on some sunglasses. Slide on some suns, sunglasses. There you go. That's, you know, that's modern day yeah. um, <laughs> sun message. But, you know, there should also be uh, a uh, skin check at the end of that, I suppose. Uh -huh. um, yes. But it's interesting because, you know, people are certainly a lot more aware nowadays um, of the sun message. They don't all follow it. But I think, 
you know, if we wanted to look up anything about our skin, you know, when we were teenagers or in our early 20s, we were, you know, going to Encyclopedia Britannica, I think, Um, whereas now it's just everywhere, you know. Skin is just in. And um, so at least people understand about the message of ageing as well as, as skin cancer. It's getting better, but tans are still popular. There's a lot yeah. of tans in a bottle that are good. I think people care more about how they look than if they get sick, especially younger people. So if it affects their way they're going to age, they're probably more likely to pay attention. They're probably more scared yeah. of being ugly than having melanoma, probably. I know. The, the number of people I see and they're like, oh, I, I never tan my face. I only tan <laughs> my body. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Um, but, you know, it's like people are protected by their parents until they're about 14, 15, and then they start sunbaking or ignoring their parents and then they get to about 25 and suddenly realise they've got wrinkles and, um, yeah, we get them back then. But (laughs) (laughs) in between, that's a bit dangerous at the moment. Well, Kyra, thank you so much for your time. I'm aware of that you're still in your clinic and it's getting late. Um, so can you just remind people where they might get hold of you if they wanted to reach out and ask you a question directly, maybe, you know, Instagram or your work or however you prefer? Yeah, sure. You can uh, find me on Instagram, uh, Kara underscore dermatologist. Mm-hmm. Um, our clinic is out of northwest melbourne which is complete skin specialists and um that's on instagram as well or um our website of course fantastic well thank you so much Cara. yeah it was great great to great to put a face to um the instagram profile that likes all of our photos and posts so it's been great to have a chat with you (laughs) i'm not i'm not great on instagram (laughs) you're better than most trust me you're better than me (laughs) jake's always always telling me off because i'm not active enough on social media but i'm making an effort yeah i'm putting that on my list somewhere after going to the pub (laughs) (laughs) well Cara I wish you well and hopefully lockdown sort of ends properly soon Mm. and hopefully I get to see you soon as well at a training event or something fun yeah when you you come up to Sydney so we're we're only so we've been you know our our the beauty side of our business uh is only you know opening this week yeah for the first time since June so it's been a long time well, all I can say is prepare for the absolute chaotic rush. <laughs> they will be smashing your door down because that's what happened here in Sydney and you've waited a lot longer. Yeah, yeah. I think um, we've also got compulsory masks. So it uh, actually really affects people's, um, you know, how they socialise and they're like, well, I'm not going to get my lips done because I'm wearing a mask. No one will see them. <laughs> wow. Or, there's a lot more a lot more room for upper face Botox and or else there's um the I'll get my lips done while I can cover the bruises with a mask. Uh, That's the thing. You know, you people don't have to suffer downtime at work anymore because they're all working from home. So there's there's always an opportunity. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, who knows what'll happen. I just as long as we don't go back into another lockdown. Uh, yeah. You know, but you've got to behave case, yourselves, you huh? Bad? <laughs> Jake, have you said so again? The UK is looking pretty dire again. Yeah, it's look, um, certain areas are already in a full lockdown and it's sort of creeping towards London. Um, it's just inevitable. I mean, 
you know, I don't want to get to the politics, but it was crazy that straight after the, the first lockdown, people were flying all over Europe and mixing and there was no sort of safeguards. Whereas here, you know, you might sort of criticize it, but at least apart from Melbourne, things have been pretty good compared to the rest of the world. Yeah, and I think that was like why why Melbourne's just gone so hard because they had to get back in line with the rest of the country. Otherwise, you know, there was no hope of of ever opening up um, yeah. the country. So hopefully it's been kind of a long enough tail <laughs> yeah, yeah. to prevent that happening here, but it's hard to know, isn't it? Yeah, well, look, I don't see us flying anywhere abroad for at least a year. Um, and who knows what will happen in the future but um, yeah well thank you for your time we'll end on a happy note and um, we'll um, we'll be in touch soon alright well thank you thanks Clara thanks Clara take care of yourself for our latest news upcoming guests and episode topics follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics during the week before every recording look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out you can also DM us for any other information suggestions or guest requests